Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you are with us in person, are joining us via live stream, or watching on demand at some later date, we're glad for the opportunity to worship with you today. If you are part of our Dayspring family, welcome home. If you are new to Dayspring, we want you to feel like you've come home as well. When you think about it, it's amazing that through the gift of technology, we can connect to one another regardless of location and worship together. No matter when or where you are watching from, we're glad you are here with us. Here at Dayspring, we believe nothing is more important than your spiritual growth. We are committed to helping you thrive no matter where you are on your spiritual journey. Perhaps you're just curious about church, or maybe you're just looking for some hope. Maybe you don't know why you're here this morning. That's okay. Bring your questions and your doubts. You are welcome here. Your journey matters to us, and we would love nothing more than to walk with you. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church or by checking out our Facebook page. I'm Chris Voigt, lead pastor at Dayspring. I'd love to connect with you if you have questions about today's message or about the next step in your spiritual journey. If you want more information about Dayspring and getting connected into our community, I'd be glad to help you do that as well. To help you get the most out of the message today, we've prepared some discussion questions to help you process what you are learning on your own or with others. You can find the discussion guide in our resources section of our website. And now, let's worship together. Well, uh, we were in the subway in Rome. If you've ever been on a subway in a foreign uh, country, you understand what I mean when I say it's quite an experience. A public transit in most foreign countries pushes our American need for personal space to its limit. As in, when it comes to public transit, in, they believe in negative personal space. They just pack them in like sardines. I've been in a crowded subway car in New York City, and let's call that zero personal space. Now subtract 10 or 20%. You, you get the picture. It's if the crowd moves, you move with it kind of crowded. When the crowd sways around a corner, you're all swaying together. It's if you fall, you'll get trampled kind of crowded, except if you fall, you won't know that you've fallen. The crowd will just keep you standing until the next stop. So, uh, of course, we were warned ahead of time that this kind of crowded made it easy for thieves to do their work undetected. And if you weren't paying attention, they would probably unzip your backpack and rob you blind without you even feeling it. Uh, in that kind of crowd, even a bad pickpocket could get your wallet and it would feel like you were just bumping up against someone else. It was the year... 2000, so it wasn't a fashion faux pas to wear a fanny pack. Uh, don't get me wrong, they weren't cool, just not obnoxious. And when you were spending the day exploring Rome and wanted to travel light, they were necessary. You, you couldn't leave your passport and cash in your hotel room. It's about as safe as the subway. And so my friend Brian was rocking the fanny pack look. One hand on the bar above him to hold himself and the other at his side. And I looked down and I saw another hand 
uh, begin to slowly unzip his fanny pack. Brian, I said, loud enough to catch his attention, and then I gave him the someone is trying to steal money out of your fanny pack eyes. <laughs> now, I have to be honest, I'm not good at this kind of communication. <laughs> Much to Didi's chagrin, I don't read minds, I don't read lips, and I don't read eyes, which means I also don't speak any of them. But in this moment, Brian was picking up what I was laying down, and he moved his hand just in time and set it on his fanny pack, re-zipping it in the process. Crisis averted. Had we not been warned ahead of time, I probably wouldn't have been on alert. My eyes would have been people watching at eye level instead of watching for bad people at waist level. In every country I've ever visited, someone who cared about me has warned me about something to keep me from experiencing the hardship that comes from falling into a trap. In Honduras, it was, don't leave the hotel unless you're escorted by one of our people. It isn't safe in this part of town. In Peru, it was, don't let one of the helpful-looking guys outside the airport help you with your luggage no matter how much they beg. It might not be your luggage for long. In Argentina, don't get into an unofficial taxi. You could end up somewhere where you don't want to be stripped of anything of value. Uh, in some countries, it's how you fill out the entry paperwork or what, what you say in customs when they ask you, how much is that worth when you're bringing music gear into the country? They like to tax everything. But even more than that, bribes are the unofficial currency of many foreign economies. And they, they look for naive-looking Americans to line their pockets. In fact, on one trip, our driver in Peru was pulled over on the way to drop us at the airport for our return home. And we were having a conversation, and he wasn't paying any attention, and he ran a red light, which is normal in their culture. A stop signs are suggestions and red lights are stop unless you can figure out how to get through the light without getting hit. Everybody does it. But there we were, stopped by a policeman after running the only red light in the country where apparently that isn't okay. The officer handed our driver the rule book conveniently opened to thou shalt not run that red light page which is Peruvian code for slide some money into that book and I'll let you go without a ticket because I need to put food on the table and this pays better than my salary. Our driver refused. Instead, he used the words important Americans and don't make them miss their flight or you'll be sorry for the international trouble it heaps down on your head or something like that. And eventually it worked. It's a good thing we were warned what the rule book meant. Warnings are good. They protect us. They heighten our senses and cue us to pay attention to the right things so we don't end up someplace we don't want to be doing something we don't want to do. And that's where we find ourselves today as we look at the warning the Apostle John gives the Christians of Asia Minor in chapter 2 of 1 John. Now, if you're just joining us today, we're a few weeks into our series, How Do You Recognize a Christian? Over the summer, we'll be exploring the kinds of characteristics that will begin to rub off on us as a result of our fellowship with God and other Christ followers. A fellowship simply means in common, as in we had nothing in common before Jesus made a way with God, and now, thanks to Jesus, we do. 
And the deeper our relationship with him and with our brothers and sisters in Christ, the more we have in common with him. The good news is, uh, for us is that these in common characteristics are the evidence that we're saved and on the right track spiritually. They give us an assurance of our salvation. They're proof of life. And more good news for us, the absence of these characteristics gives us clues that we are off track, that we've gone off the rails spiritually, that we have a fellowship problem that we can work on. Uh, For example, the first characteristic was the fullness of joy. Fellowship with God produces joy in our lives, real joy, not shallow happiness that masquerades as joy. Real joy lightens our perspective and gives us hope, even in the deepest valleys. And real joy is a gift of the Holy Spirit given through fellowship with God. So no joy clogged fellowship pipeline. The lack of joy is a warning. The second characteristic of in commonness with God and other Christ followers is walking or living in the light. Walking in the light is not just the absence of wrong or sin in our lives. It is also the presence of right found through obedience to God's word. These two aspects of walking in the light can be summed up with the word love. Uh, Biblical love, agape in the Greek, the highest level of love. Agape is a choice. It's a decision we make independent of whether it is deserved or not. We love this way out of obedience. And really, the way John and Jesus and the Apostle Paul would boil it down, if we asked ourselves, what does love require of me in this moment? Every time we were faced with anything we would be walking in the light. No agape in whatever scenario is a clue that I have a fellowship problem. The lack of love is a warning. Now that's all good news for us Christ followers. Here's the bad news. People are watching. Even today we have people here in the room and watching online who are checking out the claims of Jesus. They're wondering whether Jesus really is the answer. And they aren't interested in our theology. They're more interested in seeing if Jesus really makes life better. And we are the public face of Jesus' marketing campaign. When we live life with clogged intimacy pipes, with no joy or love the way the Bible defines them, we send mixed messages On the one hand, we say with our mouths that Jesus does make a difference in our lives, but our actions speak louder than our words. And we end up leaving a bad taste in the mouths of people looking for uh, their spiritual answers in us. So let's not do that anymore. And for those of you just checking out the claims of Jesus or Uh, who are skeptical of the claims of Jesus, we are glad that you're checking him out. This is a great place, a safe place to uh, ask your questions. Any inconsistencies, any inconsistencies you see in our lives are because of our failures, not Jesus. When we let you down, and we will let you down, even with our best efforts, if you stick with us through this series of messages, you'll see what the benchmark should be. And the Bible is the best place 
to go for all of life's answers. And if joy and love are attractive to you, you're on the right track. And when you have questions, just find someone who glows with joy and love, even if a bit imperfectly. They should be able to point you in the right direction. Following Christ doesn't make us perfect. It isn't a make life easy and problem-free easy button. It just changes our trajectory to more joy and more love as we deepen the quality of our fellowship with God from now through eternity. And over time, our lives are different, better, more meaningful. Now that brings us up to speed. So let's continue where we left off last week in 1 John chapter 2. After all of his talk about the right kind of love, John pivots as he warns us about the wrong kind of love. Uh, Yes, there is a wrong kind of love. In fact, it's the kind of love God actually hates. It's a love for what the Bible describes as the world. Now, just to make sure we're all on the same page, we should clarify what we mean when we use the word world in this context. Uh, In the New Testament, the word world has three different meanings. First, it sometimes means the physical planet, terra firma, earth. We see this example uh, in uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 24, where Luke writes, He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. So world can refer to our physical world. The word world also means the human world, mankind. John 3.16, probably the most well-known verse in the Bible across mankind, for God so loved the world. God didn't so love the planet that he sent his son, He sent his son because he so loved the people on the planet, humankind, people made in his image. The world we are going to discuss today, the world that God hates, isn't either of these. We should appreciate the beauty of creation. And after last last week, we know we should definitely choose to agape love people. It's the third meaning of the word world that gets us into trouble. And here, when John uses the word world, he is using the third New Testament meaning of the word. He means Satan's system for opposing the work of Christ on earth. Satan's system for opposing the work of Christ on earth. You might think of it like the world of sports or the world of finance. Each of those phrases would encompass everything that has to do with that subject, all things sports-related, all things finance-related. World, in this sense, encompasses the set of ideas, people, activities, purposes, etc., of whatever the subject is. In this case, Satan's system. It is an invisible spiritual system opposed to God and Christ that influences the ideas, people, activities, and purposes of the physical world we live in. It's all things related to the opposition of Christ's work on earth, spearheaded by the prince of this world. That's the phrase that Jesus used to describe the fallen angel Satan, CEO of the dark. All of us, whether we follow Christ or not, are citizens of the planet. All of us, whether we follow Christ or not, are members of humanity. We all have that in common. 
But when it comes to this third meaning of the word world, that commonality changes. Unsaved people, people who don't follow Christ, are citizens of the system of Satan's opposition to Christ. They are tools Satan uses as he opposes the work of Christ. We don't generally think of it that way, and most of them certainly don't think of themselves as aligned with Satan. Uh, You often hear me say that God is generally a both-and kind of God, but in this case, it's either-or. You are either on Team Jesus or opposing Team Jesus. Now, clearly, I'm not saying that all unsaved people are devil worshipers, but even good people, apart from Christ, belong to the system of the world. They are oblivious to the spiritual truth because they remain spiritually dead, whereas we are spiritually alive and mostly alert. And to be fair, even Christians aren't completely aligned with Christ's work on earth. But in our case, it's the ability to see and do something about our misalignments that makes us people in process. We were blind, but now we see, and we're learning to walk in the light. It's slow obedience in the right direction. Christ followers are not citizens of this world system. We have traded our citizenship in Satan's system, which was ours by default. We were born into it for citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Jesus said it this way in the Gospel of John, Chapter 15, verse 19. He said, The world, that Satan system, the world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it. But you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world. So it hates you. Now, we are, as the Apostle Paul says, citizens of heaven. Uh, This is no longer our natural habitat. Our new spiritual life has awakened within us a dissonance with this world, a longing for home. This dissonance is the tension we feel between our living spirits and our dying bodies. Theologian Warren Wearsby described it this way. The believer is somewhat like a scuba diver. The water is not man's natural habitat, for he is not equipped for a life in or under it. When a scuba diver goes under, he has to take special equipment with him so that he can breathe. The Holy Spirit is our special equipment, and we fill our spiritual air tanks through fellowship with God found through prayer, reading the Word of God, and other spiritual practices. This world, the one we have been born into but have been chosen out of by Christ, is the world that we are called to hate. Not the planet, not the people on the planet, but the system of opposition to the work of Christ. So in these next verses, John gives us three reasons to hate the world. First, we should hate the world because of who we are. Let's pick it up in uh, verse 12 of chapter 2. If I can find that on my notes. Okay, here we go. Uh, I, um, as I read, I've put several phrases in bold print so that they, they stand out. And uh, you remember them as we, just, as we unpack them uh, in, in a moment, uh, what he means there. 
So I am writing to you who are God's children because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus. I am writing to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I am writing to you who are young in the faith because you have won your battle with the evil one. I have written to you who are God's children because you know the Father. I have written to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who, be who existed from the beginning. I have written to you who are young in the faith because you are strong. God's word lives in your hearts and you have won your battle with the evil one. Now, it's kind of an interesting way to address a group of people. Uh, here in not only English, but in, in a modern translation, we, we lose some of the nuance. Uh, first of all, remember that John is around 90 years old as he writes this letter. He is one of the last surviving eyewitnesses of Jesus and a founding father of the church. For him, age is relative. Even the oldest of the believers in Asia Minor is spiritually younger than he is. Spiritually and probably physically, few people lived to his age during that time of history. So when he is addressing you who are God's children in verse 12, we should read it as a grandfather affectionately addressing his entire family. Uh, regardless of the actual words that show up in your translation, he, he does this several times throughout the entire letter. Uh, from there, he addresses those mature in their faith. Uh, in the original language, this was much more, which was much more patriarchal, he uses the word for fathers, not meaning actual dads, but as an, a title of honor for those older members of the church, possibly even elders in church leadership. And then in the second half of verse 13, he addresses those younger in their faith. Again, the original language is directed toward young men, but John would mean all those under the leadership or mentorship of the older saints. And then in verse 14, he uses a different word for children in the original language than he used in verse 12. So where verse 12 is a generic, we are all his children, here in verse 14, he means children in the faith, meaning those who are still just getting a grip on what it means to follow Christ. As a side note, you can see the progression of what Christian growth looks like in these verses. Children, adults, old people, or seasoned saints, uh, just like life, except you can be an old people in age and a young in the faith. The Apostle John is getting the attention of everyone, every generation of spiritual maturity. This applies to all of us, regardless of how mature we are in Christ. The warning that will follow will apply to everyone. We are never too mature to fall victim to the lies of the enemy. Woven in between these greetings is a reminder of who we are in Christ. Uh, these are spiritual blessings that we have in our permanent family relationship with Christ. Uh, though he addresses these blessings with the three different spiritual groups within the church, each of these blessings apply to all believers regardless of maturity level. Uh, purely by the grace of God, we are all forgiven. We all know Christ. The phrase, who is from the beginning, is a reference to his divinity. We all know God and connects us to the gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. 
Uh, Our relationship with Christ gives us the strength to overcome or stand against the world we are called to hate, thanks to the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Scholars aren't exactly sure why John used repetition here in these verses. And for uh, you grammar nerds, scholars don't really know why he changes from present tense to past tense in the phrasing. And none of the reasons change the meaning for us, and there are nuances for scholars to debate, so us regular folk can just take it as he states it. We are forgiven children of God, co-heirs with Christ, called to and empowered to walk in the light instead of the dark. Light is incompatible with the dark. They cannot coexist together. Therefore, we should hate the world because of who we are. And we should hate the world because of what the world does to us. So let's keep reading. In verses 15 and 16, John continues, Do not love this world, nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. Okay, when it comes to the world, loving the world is more about our attitude than our actions. As we learned last week, just because we don't sin doesn't mean we do love. I cannot lie about you and still not love you. I cannot commit adultery and still not love my wife. I can even do something good out of obligation and still not agape love. So just as all that is true, I can not participate in some of the world's activities and still love the world. The Old Testament law focused on outward activities, but was powerless to change the heart. The New Testament law of love begins in the heart and then changes our actions on the outside. Uh, maybe think about it this way. Uh, when we were in Florida in April, the rental car company upgraded us to an Infiniti QX80, a big, honking, fully loaded SUV that was really fun to drive. A little less fun to park because it was so big, but then again, it was big enough that anything needed to get out, to get out of the way. Uh, I looked it up just in case I wanted to buy one when uh, we got home. Uh, they cost around $70,000. I drive a 2005 Nissan Altima with a transmission that's going to be, need to be replaced soon. I like my car, but it pales in comparison to that infinity. I could never buy another car, let alone an infinity, and let envy rob me of peace and contentment that comes with no car payment. Envy robs me of gratitude for what I do have, which is in reality better than 6.99999 billion people on this planet by a million times. Envy never comes from God. It only comes from the systems of this world controlled by the enemy of my soul. Every moment I envy, it steals my focus from what's eternal. In fact, it robs me of intimacy with God. 
That's what John means in verse 15. It steals my love for God. Envy makes me discontent with God's best for my life. Even if I never act on that envy, because it's a heart issue before it's ever acted on. Now, of course, if there happens to be an infinity dealer watching that wants to permanently loan me one out of the goodness of their heart, I'll make sure I get my envy, uh, my heart right with God. Okay, just kidding. This, uh, that isn't really the car I'd want. It just represented something I want and don't have <laughs> and made me a little envious for a moment or two. And envy keeps rearing its ugly head. Dee Dee and I are talking about possibly purchasing a new-to-us car. I'm keeping the Holy Spirit working overtime as he reminds me to keep my heart in check. Now, I should say that owning an infinity isn't the issue. Lots of godly people with their heads screwed on straight own cars like that with a right heart. The issue is my heart in relation to that object. So let's do this. Let's define loving the world like this. Anything in my life that causes me to lose enjoyment of the Father's love for me or the desire to do his will or live my life in alignment with his values. Catch that? Anything in my life that causes me to lose enjoyment of the Father's love for me or the desire to do his will or live my life in alignment with his values. What makes this harder than it should be is that most things aren't black and white. Like lying, it is always loving the world to lie. God is truth, in him there is no lie. On the other hand, one of Satan's monikers is the prince of lies. That one is black and white. It is also always loving the world to murder, always loving the world to steal, always loving the world to hate. But God gave us a bunch of great gifts to enjoy when he created the world. Eating and drinking, sleeping, sex, significance, belonging, all of those are gifts. They are legitimate God-given needs or desires, and when they are met in God-honoring ways, they are good. They are part of living in the light. Unfortunately, the prince of lies, who doesn't have a creative bone in his body, takes what God has deemed good and warps it. He twists it from something good to something ugly. In fact, that's how he snags us in his trap. He presents something that is almost good. And as a result, we end up trying to meet legitimate needs in illegitimate ways. Eating becomes gluttony. Drinking becomes intoxication. Sleeping becomes laziness. Sex becomes, well, you know. Significance becomes power and achievement. Belonging becomes manipulation. It becomes you need to meet my needs instead of me meeting yours. It's a shallow, one-sided version of connection. And while Satan might not be creative, he's incredibly sneaky. And verse 16 gives us three methods to his madness. The craving for physical pleasure is lust of the flesh. The craving for everything we see is lust of the eyes. And pride in our achievements and possessions is a boastful pride of life. Now, I think most of us know what lust of the flesh is. It's the physical meeting of legitimate needs in ways outside of God's design, as we've been talking about. Our outward actions. 
Lust of the eyes is a little more refined. They are the pleasures that enter our mind through our eyes, the sensual activities that we see on TV and in movies that stoke our fantasies, the intellectual pursuits that are contrary to the things of God, that make us doubt his goodness, his sovereignty, his plans and purposes. We all have moments of doubt on our own without the help of the world. John wrote this letter to help us process our doubts, but the world feeds doubt. It can never ease doubt. Lust of the eyes represents the state of our inner man, our heart. The eyes are the gateway to the soul and mind, and these things risk changing how and what we think of God. We easily lose enjoyment of God's love for us, the desire to do his will and live life in alignment with his values. And then the boastful pride of life is finding our identity and security in anything but God, our stuff, our position, our money. We need to hate the world because it does everything it can to keep us from moving toward righteousness. It fights against every good thing God has for us. And even if it only takes us 1% off of the truth, over time, that trajectory will take us to places we'll regret. We're in a constant battle for our hearts and minds. And while we know who wins the war, the battle along the way can be painful and destructive to our lives. And John is warning us so we can avoid the pain and destruction that we might bring on ourselves. So hate the world because of who we are, hate the world because of what it does to us, and last, hate the world because of where the world is going. Uh, Here's our last verse for today. Verse 17, and this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Now, it doesn't take a Christ follower to tell that something is wrong in this world. My grandmother, who doesn't want anything to do with Christianity, would tell you that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, As many advances as we've made technologically, as far as we've come intellectually, hate is more prevalent than ever before. Everything of this world will soon pass away. Every corrupted expression of God's good will not make it through the flames of judgment. Only faith, hope, and love will last. One of the sneakiest lies of Satan is that we will all sit here in this room or watch online and not in agreement. I might even get a verbal amen from Karen. (laughs) Christ followers know this is true, which is most of us. We know this is true. And yet, we will leave this service and go home to what we think of as real life. We won't love our our spouse and children the way God calls us to. We'll be rude to the slow person in line in front of us. Our boss will still be worthy of our contempt instead of respect. We'll continue to find security in our bank balance. We'll sneak online tonight and satisfy our eyes with the sensual lust. We'll drink more than we should, eat more than is healthy. We'll be satisfied with liking God, but not really loving him with our lives. We might do some of the good things that good Christians are supposed to do, but we certainly won't pursue him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
we'll continue our dance with the dark instead of chasing the light. I wish it weren't true, but experience tells me something different because even I struggle. And if I, as your pastor, still struggle in the fight, I know you do too. At some level, we've decided to buy into the lies. We settle for almost good. And even if it's only just a little, just a smidge, that's too much. It's time to pick a side. There is no neutral. You are either becoming like Christ or you're becoming less like Christ. There's no middle ground. There's no staying the same. So what are you going to do about it? Now, here's the deal. I think you know where you dance with the dark. I think the Holy Spirit is laying something on your heart right now. There is for all of us the next thing God is asking us to surrender. You know what it is. And if you don't, your spouse does. Your best friend does. Your dog probably knows. But it's just too polite to say anything. So if you don't know, ask one of them. On the other hand, the heart is deceitful above all things. And no one knows your heart like the Holy Spirit. So maybe ask him to lead the way. And then go do it. Obey, trust, believe, decide right now in this moment, right here today, in this moment, decide to obey. Paul tells us to capture every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Capture it right now before you're distracted by lunch. And this becomes just another cautionary tale. If it requires more faith, you're on the right track. Faith will last forever. If it will give you more hope, you're on the right track. Hope lasts forever. If it requires more love, do that. In a world filled with hate, love is a beacon for the lost. And love lasts forever. If you need help, just ask. There is no shame in needing help. We are all broken. None of us has it all together. Asking for help might be the best first step of the rest of your life. None of us has it all together, no matter what it looks like on your social media newsfeed. The world isn't worthy of your love. It will always turn its back on you and eat you alive. Hate the world. Love Jesus with your life. Let's pray. As we go to prayer, I'm just going to allow a, a couple of moments of silence for you to just cement in your spirit whatever that next step is for you, the, the obedience that God is calling you to.
Father, thank you that you don't let us stay the same. Thank you that you have plans and purposes that take us deeper and deeper into fellowship with you. And I know we all, we all feel this way. All Christ followers feel this way. We are uh, discouraged sometimes. We are um, frustrated sometimes that, that we don't really live well what you have called us to. Even with the best of intentions. So, Father, uh, even in this moment, uh, we just surrender all of that at the cross. And we ask that the Holy Spirit would do what he needs to do in us to take the next step. May we be no longer apathetic about choosing the perfect good over the almost good. May we no longer settle. Now, it's likely that today there are some people watching, uh, watching online or here in the room, who have never surrendered their life to Christ, that have been trying to live life in their own strength and uh, are experiencing the result of that in their lives. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're looking for the hope, the joy, the love. And you're thinking Jesus might just be the answer. And I want you to know he is. He is the answer. And apart from him, you have no power to resist the system of this world. Satan is stronger than you. He's smarter than you. And you're on his team. You have no power to change your life on your own. Not long term. Certainly not for eternity. But when you surrender your life to Christ, we get the gift of the Holy Spirit living in us, dwelling in us. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us and He gives us the power to surrender, to change the trajectory to something good. So today, I just want to give you the opportunity to do just that, to say yes to God. It's it's such a a simple first step, really. Uh, Believe that Jesus is the answer and repent or confess that you've been trying to do it on your own to get there. It gets harder after this. But the first step is just repent and believe. All you have to do is say, yes, God, that's me. I want to discover what it means to follow Christ. And if you're making that decision today, in our communication card, we invite you to just let us know that. Because you, you need help. God designed us to be in fellowship with one another, to be growing in community. And you're going to need some help figuring out what the next steps are.
Father, um, as, I, as I often pray in these moments, I pray that your perfect work would be done in us. Because it, in all reality, none of us really has a complete grip on what you want to do in us. Maybe some idea, but on our own, we tend to just lie to ourselves. We tend to justify the almost good, and we really do need you to, to point the other direction, to take the almost good into completely good category. And so do your perfect work in us. We are surrendered to your perfect work in our lives. We pray in the precious name of our Savior. Amen. Thank you for joining us in worship today. Whether you are part of our Dayspring family or just joined us for the first time, we'd love to walk with you on your spiritual journey. Feel free to drop us an email if you have questions or want more information. For those of you who choose to invest financially at Dayspring, thank you for your generosity and your commitment to helping others grow. Every gift, large or small, matters, and God never ceases to surprise us with what He is able to do because of your commitment to following Him in every part of your life. If you're our guest today, please know that we consider your time a gift to us and this service our gift to you. There is no expectation or obligation for you to give. For those of you who would like to partner financially, there are three easy ways for you to give. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen. And for those of you who still use them, you can also mail a check to us. We'd like to thank those of you who subscribe, like, and share these messages with your friends. If you are listening on our podcast, feel free to leave a review. More of Jesus is the answer to all of life's problems, and we appreciate your help inviting others to check him out. We'll see you next week.